Well, here in the Gospel of Matthew, we've been watching Jesus be arrested, be falsely tried, be beaten, mocked, and crucified on a cross. The title of our message today is The Cross, The Effects It Has. Uh, Last week, we saw the supernatural effects of the cross on nature and even on the dead. This week, we're going to look at the supernatural effect that the cross of Christ has on people as Matthew is going to give us two examples. Uh, To do that, we return to the cross. So where are we? Jesus has just died after three hours of supernatural darkness. Uh, The curtain or the veil in the temple has been torn from the top to the bottom, uh, depending upon which curtain it's talking about, but you could be talking about a temple, uh, a curtain maybe 60 feet high, about 30 feet wide, and some people would say as much as 18 inches thick. So it's kind of like a movable wall. So all of a sudden, just this thing bursts, rips open uh, as Jesus dies on the cross, and there's an earthquake and the, the natural events that follow. We said last week that that veil or that curtain being torn opened up the way for people to come to God. No longer was there a restriction on who could come into the presence of God, but anybody could come in, including you and me. And uh, it's interesting, when you talk to people, sometimes people will say, well, you know, if I walk into church, uh, the the ceiling might cave down, fall in or something like that. And I can assure you that's not going to happen. But I can tell you maybe for someone here today or multiple people today, maybe the ceiling's not going to fall down, but maybe for you, the veil is going to rip. Maybe you're going to be able to walk in. You say, no, that's not going to happen to me. Not so fast. So if you're taking notes today, there's three points. Again, I, I may not even get to number two and number three. Number one will be very long. Number two will be relatively quick. And number three, don't blink because it will be over. (laughs) Don't say I didn't warn you. Number one, the cross changes hearts. The cross changes hearts. Verse 54, so when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, all the kinds of, remember we said the, the divine fireworks were going off, all the strange stuff that was happening, they, that would be the soldiers that were crucifying Jesus, feared greatly saying, truly, this was the Son of God. So Matthew, what he's doing here is he turns our, way, uh, our eyes away from the religious leaders and the crowd that's been mocking Jesus, and he even actually turns our gaze away from Jesus because we've already been told last week that Jesus yielded up his spirit. He gave his spirit to God. He, he is dead now. And Matthew turns our head also from the supernatural fireworks show that took place as nature itself responded to the cross. And he now turns our gaze to the men who actually killed Jesus. He sets our eyes on the Roman soldiers, the professional executors that were in charge of killing people who were against Caesar and the Roman government. Now, we all know that all you need to do is watch natural disasters, that that nature is indifferent to human suffering, isn't it? I mean, all of these different natural events that happen, uh, you know, natural disasters and the people, the suffering, the death, the damage, and nature seems unconcerned by it because it is unconcerned by it. So were these men. This was their job. 
Caesar says kill him. The Roman governor says kill him. That's what you got to do, right? You not, no, no, you just do like, well, I don't think it's a good idea. None of that. They had to become indifferent. But yet, as we will see, their hearts were dramatically changed. Now, Mark tells us about this fellow, this centurion, who was the boss, and really he seems to speak for the group. Matthew tells us the whole people, are, uh, guys, are having this reaction. And what was a centurion? A uh, centurion was a Roman soldier who has worked his way up the ranks, started at the bottom, and is now in charge, sent 100, now in charge of 100 men. Now, to be in charge of an ex- execution team, I think it's safe to say... Uh, safe to assume that this is a very hard man, that this is a very tough man, that this is not the kind of guy you would want to push around. Who knows how many crucifixions he had conducted? Who knows? Nobody knows. We don't know. Some He knew, but how many? who knows how many people had died at his hands? Yet, as Jesus often does, Jesus comes to meet this man and the other executioners where they are. Here Jesus comes, and he meets that man at work. And that's the wonderful thing about Jesus. He will come and meet you where you are. We often say there's many ways to Jesus, but there's one way to God, and that's through Jesus. And that me personally, Jesus met me at work. He met me probably at the most important thing in my life, which was my company and my job. And that is where he met me through other people. It's entirely possible, I don't know for sure, that that these men were called at home in the middle of the night and were with the religious leaders when Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, After the bogus religious trial, it's possible they were called back. You know, trying to get a good night's sleep, and they keep getting called back. And when, the, when the Roman leaders brought Jesus to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, for the death penalty. If so, that would mean that they heard the false charges. Perhaps they really were e- even heard what was going on at the religious leaders' you know, trial. They heard the false charges from the religious leaders to Pontius Pilate, and they heard Pontius Pilate say that he knew that Jesus was innocent. Perhaps some of them were guarding Pontius Pilate when he was talking to Jesus away from the religious leaders. We'll have to look at John's gospel to hear what was going on with that. John 18, 33 through 37. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? So the Roman governor The the Jews couldn't do the death penalty. They want him to kill Jesus. And they know that if we can get him to admit that he's a king, there's no other king but Caesar, that that Caesar's not going to take lightly to that, and he has authorization from Caesar to crucify this man. Verse 34, Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you, you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. Now just stop for one second there. Imagine you're one of the guys, you're one of the soldiers, you're in the background. You're like, Woo! (laughs) I mean, this guy's nuts, right? He's crazy. His kingdom is not of this world. Well, like, where's the spaceship, man? (laughs) Right? So Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. 
Pilate, said, Pilate therefore said to him, are you a king then? Come, let's get on with this thing. Jesus answered, you say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born and for this cause I have come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And then Pilate comes back with his famous line, what is truth? So here we have Jesus talking with Pilate, and and it's quite possible uh, that the the centurion and his team overheard some of this stuff. It's quite possible that him and some of his team were, were part of the group that whipped Jesus, put a mock royal robe on this king, and a crown of thorns on his head. And then we know that they gave a, Jesus a mock scepter. And you just picture the mocking. Ha, 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 some king you are. Look at you. We know that from Isaiah, actually, that they plucked his beard out and they spit on Jesus. Even if, if this was a different crew, workers talk, don't they? You know, get around the water cooler and say, you know, ah, this is what's going on here. This job, man. Got to get a transfer out of this dump Jerusalem. Plus, managers, what? They're given details of what's going on. Here's the situation. Here's the guy we're sending up to you. Here's what's going on with this guy. Um, here's what you might expect in terms of his, the crowd that follows after him. They think he's their, you know, their Messiah. So, so whether they were there or not, they probably know what's going on. We already covered that that day there were, there were three crucifixions on the docket. There were three crucifixions on the, on the schedule, Barabbas and two others, but if you recall, Jesus took Barabbas' place. But now let's lay aside um, what the soldiers, what the centurion and the, and the co-workers did. Let's lay that aside for a second. And let's think about what they heard and what they saw. One thing that I'm sure really was weird to them was they saw how calm Jesus was throughout the whole process. Usually, people would be up on a cross, and they'd be screaming down at them. The people would be mocking them. The soldiers would be mocking them, and they would be screaming down at them, spitting on them, and, 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 but Jesus is totally calm. Let's go back to the governor's house for a moment. Uh, John 19, 5 through 7, then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Therefore, when the chief priests and officers saw him, saw Jesus, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, You take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. Well, they were not allowed to do that. He knew that. Verse 7, the Jews answered, We have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die. Why? 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 Because, and this is very important, he made himself the son of God. Don't forget that phrase. You're going to need it in a bit. Okay? Notice how clear they are. Right? The Romans took away the death penalty from the Jews. They could punish them under their own law, but they couldn't kill them. But notice how clear they are. He made himself the son of God. We have a law. And according to our law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. The religious leaders are crystal clear on the claim. Matthew wants to make sure that we are all crystal clear on the claim of Jesus. 
So let's go to the cross, Matthew 27, 39 through 44. Jesus is on the cross. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads. If you weren't here, we have studies of all these online, or you can ask for copies of the message from the guys at the sound booth. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself, notice this, if you are the Son of God. Same phrase, very clear. If you are the Son of God, come down from that cross. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking with the scribes and elders said, he saved others, himself he cannot save. If he is king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. Remember we said the reason he could save us was because he didn't come down. Verse 43, very important. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now. Remember, this is the mocking that they're doing. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. Very clear, right? Verse 44. Even the robbers who were crucified with him, one on the right, one on the left. Remember, there's three that day. Reviled him with the same thing. So the soldiers that are killing Jesus on the cross, they know the charge against Jesus. They know that saying you're a king is to say that Caesar's not, and that's, that is worthy of the death penalty in the Roman Empire. They know that claiming to be the son of God is against the religious law of the Jews, and they want him dead, but they're not allowed to carry out the death penalty, but according to their law, he, would to, he was to be killed. As we saw last time, the whole time that Jesus was on the cross, verse 36 says that this execution team was sitting down. They kept their watch over him. So they're making sure that Jesus was dead. And while they're doing that, they're hearing everything that everybody is saying as they're coming up to that cross. They know exactly why Jesus is being crucified. The sign, remember the sign went over, Jesus, King of the Jews, that Pilate put up there. Religious leader said, no, he said he was the King of the Jews. Pilate says, what I have written, I have written. But then, it's noon. It gets completely dark. And at 3 p.m., Jesus finally screams out. We we said there were seven sayings from the cross, but, but this was the only one that Matthew and Mark records My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now we go down to verse 54. We looked at this last week. Right in the middle it says, they saw the, this, this week, they saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly. So when everything's going on, all of a sudden there's this shaking earthquake. And then they know what's going on. They're, They're amazed at this guy, like this guy is different. They're hearing what the people are saying and then, there, then this complete darkness, they're just sitting there in the midst of the dark going like, what is this? It's 12 o'clock in the afternoon. Three hours of darkness. And then all of a sudden there's this earthquake. Just imagine you're one of them. They're looking at one another. They're terrified. It says they feared greatly. And imagine one of them just finally blurts out, what is going on here? And who? This is a guy we just killed. What in the world is going on here? 
Now, it didn't take a rocket scientist to know that Jesus didn't pose a threat to anyone. And these guys would say, we were just following orders. We were just doing our job. Now you say, they mo- but they mocked and beat Jesus, yes, showing us the sinful nature and the rebellion of mankind against God. And the, although Jesus claimed to be a king, no army came. None of his friends came to try and help. Where were his followers? And he said not a word. And they probably were sitting there during the whole process going, this guy's crazier than we thought. Interesting. It says they feared greatly. Some of your versions say that they were very frightened. Sometimes the translators, they just make it too clean. It's actually the word phobeo, which is the word we, where we get our word phobia. The idea is sheer terror and panic. Now, again, this is an execution team. This is not like, <laughs> not like a, a bunch of guys who are just like, well, you know, I don't know. Right? Th- these, are, these are tough, hardened guys. And they're terrified. Interesting, it's the same word that's used when Jesus walks on the water and the apostles think they're seeing a ghost. It's the same word of of Peter, James, and John in Matthew 17 at the transfiguration when they walk up to the mountain and all of a sudden Moses and Elijah are there. They're terrified. Now these Roman soldiers were not Jews, probably pagans, and perhaps thinking this must be some sort of divine retribution. This must be the gods speaking. Or what's going on here? Verse 54 ends saying, truly this was the Son of God. This is what they said. Notice it doesn't say a Son of God. It says the Son of God. The same way everybody's been saying it all along. Matthew 14, 32, and 33, we just talked about it when Jesus walked on the water and saved Peter from sinking. It says, and when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those who were in the boat came and worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. Again, Matthew wants to make sure throughout his gospel that we are crystal clear on what he's saying about Jesus. Now, skeptics come along and say this. Well, maybe he, they, were say, they were saying, uh, you are a son of God. Because in the languages of the way this has been written throughout Matthew's gospel, you could make that claim. But certainly, they knew the charges against Jesus. Certainly, they, they knew what they heard. The religious leaders were not thinking he was a son of God. They couldn't, they couldn't say that he was guilty according to their law. They knew that he said he was the Son of God. And it says, truly this was, truly points to what? Certainty. Now that doesn't mean that they knew everything from the start. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, listen, or you're just starting out, it's okay, you gotta start. You gotta start somewhere. (laughs) Remember, the subject matter is God. It's a lot. It's a lot. Now here's the thing. I've been a Christian next month for 31 years, and I like to read. So, so have you ever ever heard of a book? Okay. So I spend most of my time with my books. I spend the morning with God and books, and the afternoon with people, and at night with Pam. 
since my kids broke our heart and moved out of our house. So, because they're grown-ups. So anyway, um, so, so when I first became a follower of Jesus, I didn't know anything. But now, I would actually tell you that I know less. And the reason I say that is because I know a lot more than I did 31 years ago. But I didn't realize how much there was to know. <laughs> and that's why I'm sitting here going, man, I, I am so thankful as long as God gives me breath and, and a sound mind, and, well, somewhat of a sound mind, and, and eyes, or I can listen to things that I can continue to daily learn about him. To say this was the Son of God is technically incorrect because it, Jesus is the Son of God. He didn't cease to be God. Again, it's okay. They're just starting out. Some of you are just starting out, and there are others going to be others that are going to really encourage you out of sight. There's going to be other people that might discourage you. Well, when you learn those things, or I understand you're excited now, do not listen to those people. Don't let them discourage you. You stay at it. You come to us. We'll come to me. We'll get you some resources and materials to help you really get going, and you can learn a lot more and, and really get going. Don't don't let anybody discourage you. Now, interesting for you, those that have you have been at this a while. When the Bible speaks of God in the singular, it almost always refers to the true God, unless the context is very clear that they're calling it a false god. Other skeptics point to Luke 23, 47 and say, well, the Bible's full of inconsistencies because it's different. Verse 47 says, so when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God. That would mean he thinks God's there. Saying, God singular, uh, saying, certainly this was a righteous man. Well, somebody, if somebody says to me, see, it's different than it is in the other ones, I would just say this. Well, righteous just might mean innocent. It also could mean holy and divine. Also, the guy is there executing Jesus probably for almost six hours. Do you think he only said one sentence? <laughs> I mean, he's allowed to say more than one thing. What's the point? They realized that the death of Jesus showed him to be the Son of God as he claimed. In fact, they are what they say what all Christians absolutely must say. If you can't say this, you are not by definition a Christian. That Jesus is the divine Son of God. Yet notice, very interesting, their confession was preceded by fear. It's interesting that Proverbs says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's the place where you start. And so sometimes people go, I don't want to hear any kind of message on Sunday that makes me afraid. Really? You don't? I guess you don't want wisdom. I guess you don't want to become a true follower of Jesus, have your sins forgiven, and, and go to heaven. See, because the fear of the Lord often fills us with faith. How does that happen? Well, it is the awareness of our sin before a holy God. And for some people, they're going to hide from him. But other people, they're going to be so afraid of a holy God, they're going to call upon the name of the Lord. And the scripture says that he or she who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. No qualifier, 
no, well, if you do this or you do that or, you know, people say, you know, you've got to be baptized. There's one of the thieves on the cross. We'll see in a minute. He, he confessed him. He just didn't go, ah, too bad, buddy. You're not baptized. Really a shame. Doesn't say that to him at all. The reality is, is that the Messiah, God become a man, his identity is most clearly seen in his saving death, saving us from our sins. Chapter 1 of Matthew, he made that clear right from the beginning, is seen in the saving death of Jesus on the cross. And only by the grace of God can people who once mocked Jesus and his followers now confess his true identity. And that was true for many of us. Many of us who sit in this room were at one time in their lives God mockers, present company included. But somehow by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, those who are true followers of Jesus are crushed by the weight of their sin as they sit at, stand at the foot of the cross. But here's the unusual thing, how it works. If you haven't experienced it, I can't really tell you, but you really got to think about it. You're watching what God thinks of sin on the cross. You're watching Jesus taking the punishment for your sin. And all of a sudden, your sin begins to weigh upon you. It begins to crush you. Yet at the same time, you sense Jesus is inviting love. So you're crushed and you're invited and you know it. The reality is that at some point, every one of us has to make a decision about the cross of Christ. When you hear about it, you have to ask yourself, did he die for you? Or was this just some bad thing that happened to him? Now, some people go, oh, I'm just neutral. Well, the teaching of the scripture is that there is no neutrality. You're either for Jesus or you're against him. And if you are not for him, then you are by definition against him. These men are leaving their neutrality. It was a job. They didn't care. This was just another guy to string up on a cross. But now they have noticed as they stood at the foot of the cross, there was something very, very different. As we said, the Gospel of Luke tells us the same was true for one of the other men that were crucified next to Jesus. He went from a mocker to a worshiper. How is this possible? I wonder, was it Jesus' words? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Perhaps the soldiers heard, when they heard Jesus yell out that, what, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They realized that he was actually being forsaken by God for them. And they were drawn to Jesus. You know, my whole life, I always thought there was something special about me. And I'm not talking about your, my parents going, well, you're the greatest, you're really special. I'm not talking about that baloney. <laughs> not, listen, I'm not saying you say your kids are bums. And even though I thought there was something special about me, there was always an emptiness in my heart. But when I realized that Jesus died on the cross for my sins and that I knew that he actually changed my heart, I knew that's what was special about me. And I no longer cared about it anymore. I just received it and just loved it. 
And here's the thing. Rather than saying, I found it, I would say it found me. And today, if you're not a follower of Jesus, he wants to find you today. John 12, 32 and 33 says this. Jesus says, and if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. And then the Apostle John, in verse 33, adds some you know, commentary to explain to us what he said. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. Now, some of you are sitting here right now, no doubt, thinking, that sounds good, Pastor Jim. Not me. You don't know what I've done. I've done some really, really bad stuff in my life. If that's you, and you think that you've done such bad things in your life that Jesus can't forgive you, I would like you right now to reach on the side of your seat for the seatbelts and put your seatbelt on. This is why what happens to this man and to these soldiers is one of the most incredible things to me in the whole of the scripture. The first post-crucifixion of faith is from the guys who killed him. It's not from the religious leaders. It's not from religious people. It's from the guys who nailed him to the cross. Darkness comes over the land. These guys are dark. Jesus dies. There's an earthquake. They don't know it. Later on, the apostles would learn this from the religious leaders who were in the temple at the time. That veil, that curtain that separates God from man is torn. But at the same time, all this is going on. The cross of Christ penetrates the darkness of these men's souls. And these murderers are the first people to walk through that veil. That is amazing to me. That veil rips. And the first guys who walk through it are the very guys who strung him up. Don't tell me you're too bad. Don't you dare tell me you're too bad. I don't buy it. I don't believe it. Don't you dare tell anybody they're too bad. Don't let anybody tell you too bad. The problem is not being too bad. The problem is that some of us are too proud. That's the problem. Jesus says, you kill me, you come in. You're invited. This is for you. I did it for you too. Don't say it's because you're not religious. It's the religious people who got him up there. It's the religious people who rejected him more than the sinners did. Why? Because religious people in general do not think that they need a savior. But the people that know that they need a savior are those people like these guys that come to the cross and the cross changes their hearts. Number two. The cross sustains hearts. Verse 55 and 56. And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, all the way from back home, ministering to him, 
were there looking from afar. Let me read verse 56 twice. And among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joses, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. So among them were Mary Magdalene. That means that she's from Magdala. Luke chapter 8, verse 2 tells us that she was once demon-possessed. A lot of people say that she was a prostitute and the sinful woman of Luke 7. That is simply tradition. Some people say that she was Jesus' wife. That's just blasphemy. Mary, the mother of James. There was two Jameses who were the apostles. One was James the Greater or James the Less. Uh, This is James the Less, not John's brother and Josie's. And the mother of Zebedee's sons, that's James and John. Salome, we, we remember she asked for her sons to sit at Jesus' right and left. Now she realizes the foolishness of what she has asked. So notice three different women are mentioned. It says there's many women, but three different ones are mentioned. Notice how they're mentioned according to their identity. Mary Magdalene, the demon-possessed woman. No mention of children, no mention of sons, of kids. The second one is is uh, Mary, the mother of James. She's identified with her kids. The third one, Mary, uh, the, and, oh, and the mother of Zebedee's sons, who's identified with her husband. So what are they? Three different women, three different lights. I find it in, lives. I find it interesting that the demon-possessed woman is listed first, especially since the last one is probably Jesus' aunt. Matthew ends this section with many women who have followed and served Jesus faithfully. And now they're with Jesus to the end. The apostles deserted Jesus. We don't know when he showed up, but one of them showed up at the cross, the apostle John. The only reason we know that is because he told us that in his gospel. (laughs) They were looking from afar. Well, it's possible they were not allowed up close. It's possible it wasn't safe for them around those Roman soldiers. Perhaps it was just too hard to watch. Some people say, oh, but their faith seems fearful. Friends, let me tell you, fearful faith is better than no faith. And when it counted, they were there. When it counted, they showed up. These women who we barely know anything about remind us of the kind of people that the kingdom of God is built with. They quietly served without expecting notoriety. Luke tells us that they contributed money too. So they understood and embraced costly service to the king. They grasped and understood Jesus' teaching on serving something the prideful apostles completely and continuously struggled to understand. These women are the definition of a disciple. A disciple is simply a learner and follower of Jesus. They counted the cost, they made a commitment, and they followed Jesus with all of their heart. In the ancient world, due to cultural bias and scriptural misinterpretation, women were generally not highly respected. Yet, interestingly enough, parts of the Old Testament and mustard of the New Testament shows them as heroes and great examples and shows men as the one who are the enemies of Jesus. And men are the ones who hurt Jesus. How pathetic it is the religious leaders look down on Jesus, but the pagans, the executioners, and the women 
they get it. The very guys who studied the Bible, the religious leaders, they don't. They saw the veil just be supernaturally ripped. They don't get it. At this time, the testimony of women was inadmissible in court. But as we'll see as we go forward in Matthew's gospel, the women were the witnesses of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Despite having their hearts broken at the cross, they are the ones who go to the tomb. Somehow, in the midst of their deep pain and their deep loss, the cross sustained their hearts. Number three, the cross calls hearts. Romans 10.9 says this, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, the centurion did, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, certainly the women did, you will be saved. Here's the problem that we have as, as people you know, who are followers of Jesus. If you're new to this, we can, we can help you pray with your mouth and confess Jesus. But we can't really help you believe in your heart that Jesus was raised from the dead. You see, most people come to Jesus for a better life. And then when things don't improve overnight, you know, 35 years of dysfunction, and all of a sudden you expect, hey, I went to church, prayed for Jesus to come into my heart. And my, life's, it's, my life's bad. You're like, dude, it's Tuesday. Right? <laughs> you see, we can't do that for you. We can, help, we can help lead you in a prayer. But we can't really help you to trust. That is something that happens between you and God. As we go to the Lord's table, I want us all to hear the call of Jesus from the cross. Sadly, some will refuse the call. You you don't want Jesus. You reject him. Please stay in your seat. And say, God, really, if you're real, you're going to have to open that veil for me. That's okay. That's okay. Others of you may be for the first time are willing to repent. That simply means to turn from your sin to God and to put your trust in Jesus Christ. You're going to now, for the first time maybe, believe in your heart. For some of you, you're going to return to Jesus. You realize that you've gotten off track. But now you have stood with those soldiers and you say to yourself, Truly, this is the Son of God, dying for my sins. And you will join those who worship Jesus. So what do you say? What will you do? What is the effect of the cross on you? Let's pray.